Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jeffrey McCosland and Tom Fossler, authors of Battle Tested. Jeffrey McCosland and Tom Fossler are the authors of the book Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. Tom, what is leadership? Well, leadership, um, being a former military officer, we go back to, uh, to uh, one of those that we, one of the officers we've studied over the years, and that is uh, uh, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, also President Eisenhower. But uh, uh, to Eisenhower and to us then, uh, leadership is, uh, is deciding what must be done and then uh, getting other people to do it. To do it, and and so that is uh, that is really the essence of, of leadership, having them believe in the cause and leading them to it. Now, Jeff, in the book, you make the distinction between leadership and management. What's the difference? Well, sort of think you know it's also important on what Tom just said. You know, you have a definition to start with. I like that it's short; you can remember it. I really like the second part of that: get people to want to do it uh, because. You might assume if you're coming from Eisenhower and you've been a five-star general president of the United States, people forget Eisenhower was also the president of Columbia University. You might say, well, goodness, I just have to give orders. People are going to run off in all directions as fast as they can. Well, he's wisely telling us is you have to get a certain amount of buy-in. We do draw a distinction between leadership and management. Obviously, there is a Venn diagram. Poorly managed organizations do fail. Uh, you have to manage organizations effectively. But management's about <clears throat> organizational design, resource allocation. Uh, it's a bit more short-term in focus. If you look at the history of the study of management, you go back to the early part of the 20th century and the advent of MBA programs like at places like Harvard University, which around the First World War. Uh, so it's dealing with complexity, oftentimes dealing with data. Uh, leadership is dealing with the future, dealing with change. And oftentimes, like to quote another general I used to work for in the Pentagon, and he used to say, you know, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance a lot less. And that seemed to me particularly poignant back there in the 19th century and certainly poignant in the 21st century because we live in a period of enormous change. So if one's about complexity and data and the other's about dealing with change, that's sort of the distinctions that I would draw between leadership and management. And well-run organizations have those leaders who can realize there are certain things I have to accomplish now, whether you're leading an army in 1863 or leading the Pennsylvania Cable News Network, by the way, there are certain things we have to do today to make sure that we're still here tomorrow. But then we often spend some time today thinking about, particularly in a period of turbulence, well, like we are now, on change, where's our organization going to be one year, five year, ten years from now, and are we starting to put in place things and developing our workforce to meet those new challenges of the future? Now, Tom, you're a licensed battlefield guide at Gettysburg. Uh, why is Gettysburg such an interesting topic to look for leadership lessons? Well, there are, Phil, there are so many examples of, of leadership uh, exhibited during the Gettysburg campaign. There are so many personalities because what we're studying is, is, is the leadership uh, attributes exhibited by the different, uh, the different leaders and commanders. And I'm not talking about just the generals either. 
uh, a lot uh, of the of the colonels uh, that were were active and and the the younger leaders, both commissioned and and uh, non-commissioned officers. And so there are so many examples to choose from if you're going to hold up a standard as to leadership, positive leadership. But there's also to reverse the coin. There's the opportunity to study negative leadership as well. And so in the book, in our book, we draw out uh, both aspects. Of course, more positive than negative, but we don't uh, we don't shun the uh, the uh, the negative learning aspects. You know, on that, uh, if I could add. Phil, you know, if the three of us, pretty educated guys, examined organizations, examined strategy, if we went to any organization and we were allowed to poke around and talk to people, after a couple of days we could probably come away and say how well or how poorly that organization was run. But if we happened to show up when that organization was in a crisis, then good leadership and bad leadership is going to stick out in bold relief because what does the crisis do? Well, it compresses time and leaders have to make decisions. And in essence, that's really what a battle is. It's two organizations that are in the midst of a crisis. So that's why we find it to be particularly poignant to do that and use this particular crisis, and we see that sticking out in bold relief. And we would argue that, in, for, without a doubt, two things. One is we're in a period of crisis right now, uh, and that's why this is a particularly good time for a book like this. Certainly we're in a crisis brought about by a pandemic. Certainly we're in a crisis brought about by economic dislocation for individuals and organizations. And quite frankly, we're in a crisis in our society right now of either social justice or at least faith in institutions. And I don't think what, wherever you are on a political spectrum, you're concerned about faith in institutions. That's a crisis as well. So that's why we think the enduring principles that we point out from the battle certainly apply now in the 21st century and can give a lens for leaders today to look through as they try to map out the direction for their organizations into the future. Now, one of the uh, characteristics of the leaders that you talk about in your book is that they're operating at the strategic level and talking about strategy. Uh, what's the difference between strategy and tactics? Well, tactics, of course, is the here and now, usually uh, affected by small-term organizations. If you talk about, you know, uh, tactics for an organization, we in the Army would talk about units up to the size of about a brigade. Okay, and at that level, you can see what your people are doing, giving them direct orders and have them execute. And a strategy, of course, is longer term. And we're talking about moving organizations broadly in the future. Uh, you, you don't have the luxury of seeing what they do. You have to anticipate. You have to lead through others. You have to deal with changing times. You have to accept risk. And that's why uh, strategy and tactics are different. And, you know, Tom and I began our particular efforts in thinking about this book when both of us were at the Army War College. Tom was the director of the Military History Institute, and I was the dean of academics. And one thing we did was we would take officers down to the War College, from the War College down to Gettysburg for a military staff ride. And in some ways, that's why the park was, in fact, created. But the whole purpose of the War College, really, in essence, if you want to melt it all down, is to take a group of officers and some senior civilians who have been very successful at what we would call the tactical level and the operational level of war or, or uh, organizational uh, management and leadership and transition them to the strategic level where they're hopefully comfortable for the balance of their career. And finally, you know, I always like to say the difference between tactics and strategy is, again, whether you're leading a small company or you're leading an army at Gettysburg, you know, tactics, uh, I actually solve a problem. Move your unit from point A to point B. There's a start, there's a middle point, there's an end. Strategy is often about managing problems. 
you know, we're not going to solve this problem perhaps on my tenure. We're going to manage it. We can make it better. We can make it worse. We can keep this about the way it is. But it's a lot more complex, a lot more nuanced, and that has to do with strategy. Tom, uh, when you're in, in a place like the Army War College and you are trying to help these officers transition from tactical leadership to strategic thinking and strategic leadership, what are some of the challenges there? How do you, is tactical leadership something that needs to be kind of overcome to some degree? Well, I think most often we use, we use the, the uh, historical example uh, as, as part, of, part of professional development in making that transition and crossing the bridge from the tactical level, operational level, to the strategic level. And, uh, and quite often then it's, the, it's the, uh, the history, it's the military history. It's a study of the military profession that uh, enables us to, to make that, uh, that crosswalk. Now, when people talk about strategy, you often hear people talk about ends, ways, and means. Uh, Jeff, what, what are ends, ways, and means? Well, ends are, are the objectives. What are you trying to accomplish? Let's take it to the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, I often say to people, when they think about what the South is trying to accomplish, what was Robert Lee Lee trying to accomplish? And by the way, this whole battle really begins with a strategy conference that occurs in Richmond uh, in late May of 1863. The Confederates have been successful at Chancellorsville, and like any organization, what do they do? We're going to have a corporate planning conference and figure out what we're going to do next. And they have several options, one of which is for Lee to move into uh, Pennsylvania and Maryland, replenish resources for not only the Army, but for the people of Richmond and Virginia, which in many cases people were starving for lack of wheat and products, uh, and also then threaten a major city. Uh, their goal initially was Harrisburg, and in so doing, tip the balance in the favor of the Confederacy. They realized there'd be an election in 1864. Maybe we can discredit Abraham Lincoln. Someone will win who will be willing to negotiate with the South uh, and, and allow us to become independent. So when he comes north, I say to people, you know, he didn't come here to win a battle. That would be a tactical event. Robert E. Lee's here to win the war. This is about the strategy, the end state, which is winning the war. That's what we're trying to accomplish. And that has to do with two things for the Confederacy. One, of course, is their independence as a political entity. And second of all uh, is to preserve what they would call the peculiar institution which, of course, was uh, slavery. So those are ends. What are ways? Those are the concepts, plans, and processes we're going to go about this. And he maps out a campaign plan that will move his army westward uh, towards the Appalachian Mountains, cross those mountains, and then use the Shenandoah Valley as basically a, a, a route of advance to come up north, cross into Maryland, and eventually into uh, central Pennsylvania. And thirdly, last but not least, what are the means? Well, the means are people, money, and time, capital items. So he'll bring about 75,000 soldiers with him. The Army of the Potomac will mount about 90,000 soldiers. They will not all arrive at the same moment. They'll be coming in across the first couple of days of the battle. And those are the resources that both armies have to husband as they conduct their plans and procedures then for the conduct of the actual battle. Now, you both talked about the Army War College as, as uh, a vehicle for training officers to th think strategically. Uh, Tom, what types of, how would officers have been taught strategy uh, before the Civil War? Well, certainly those that uh, had the good fortune of a, of a West Point uh, uh, commissioning process will have received instruction on strategy. But basically beyond that, uh, um, it was, it was self-taught. Uh, in terms of the uh, U.S. military profession. The strategy that they're studying is, uh, is Jomini, uh, somewhat a little bit of Clausewitz, but that is attained at the Military Academy at West Point prior to the war. 
but uh, as I say, beyond that fortunate group of officers, um, there isn't much study on, on a strategy. So they have to learn um, on the go. Uh, they have to be a quick study to have an understanding. And that's probably perhaps why in the early years of the war, there was a lot of, uh, particularly on the northern side, uh, indecision as the best ways to, uh, to uh, reach out to the strategic level. Perhaps one of the foremost students during the war of, uh, of, of strategy from a person who was not a strategist or had not been taught strategy was President Lincoln. And I think we can look at uh, Lincoln and uh, his inner relationship uh, with, with his generals, some, a number of which he's going to uh, relieve of command in the early going, uh, but uh, he's going to emerge as a pretty good strategist himself. Yeah, just like I had, Tom got it exactly right, but to embellish one second longer, you know, the study of Jean Manet, who was a who was a Swiss strategist from the 19th century, and of course this is from the Napoleonic War. I always find it stunning that my, our forebears, Tom and I, forebears, would study a Swiss strategist. I can't think of a lot of great Swiss military victories, but be that as it may, that's what they studied. Uh, and what Jean Manet preached a lot was that the capture of your opponent's capital is the ultimate objective of strategy which again, I always found curious since Napoleon does capture uh, Moscow, it just doesn't do him a great deal of good. But <clears throat> strategically, the military officers who were schooled at West Point uh, and elsewhere will focus on that, particularly in the Eastern theater. And that's why, what's the objective? The objective is to capture Richmond if you're a Union general. And that's why you have all these battlefields between Washington, D.C. and the Confederate capital that are only separated by 90 miles, oddly enough, uh, throughout that war. As they are coming north, it's curious, as Tom mentioned, you know, they're schooled in that regard, uh, the Union general initially, when the campaign begins, a guy named Joe Hooker. And as I mentioned, Robert E. Lee heads west, quickly crosses the Appalachians and starts heading north. He steals a march on Hooker. And Hooker looks across the river, there's nobody there. So he sends a message to Lincoln, schooled as he was, uh, and says, I'm going to take the Confederate capital. And Lincoln, very wisely, gave me schooled as Tom just mentioned, sends him a message back, says, no, no, General, no, 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 no. Look, if you destroy that army of Northern Virginia, we can go to Richmond anytime we want to. That's really the strategic objective here. And what you're going to do is make sure your army stays between Washington, D.C. And, and this Confederate army. That's what's key and essential. So here you have, as Tom rightfully points out, Lincoln, who schools himself as a strategist and as a thinker and as a leader, really guiding and directing his military officers on what the strategic objectives really are and how we need to focus on them. Now, the commander, the Union commander at Gettysburg would be uh, General George Gordon Meade. Uh, so uh, what happened to Hooker? Well, it's interesting. Good old Joe Hooker, as they're moving north, uh, on the uh, Confederates are moving north, he sends lots of messages to uh, President Lincoln and to General Halleck, who is Lincoln's primary military advisor, saying, oh, I'm terribly outnumbered. You have to send all the troops that are in Washington and strip the defenses to reinforce me. That wasn't true, but Hooker was pretty worried. He'd been beaten very badly at Chancellorsville. He will eventually then send a message to Lincoln and say, basically, if you don't do what I'm, I'm urging you to do, I'm going to have to resign. There is some difference of opinion of whether he resigned or he got fired. But in either event, on the 28th of June, uh, George Meade, as you rightfully point out, Phil, who is a corps commander, a rider shows up at night, wraps on his tent flap. Now, Meade would actually write in a diary, I thought I was being arrested. And the rider says, no, it's worse than that. You're being promoted. You're now in command. So George Gordon Meade is put in command of the Army of the Potomac only two days prior to this battle. And this is one of the fascinating things that Tom and I have talked a lot about in terms of the primary military leaders, Lee and Meade, 
are in very different positions with respect to their organizations for this iconic battle. Meade is leading his peers. Two days ago, I was just another Corps commander. In fact, several of my fellow Corps commanders outrank me by date of rank. So my credibility in getting them to want to do it is somewhat suspect. On the other side of the field, Robert E. Lee is an icon. He's a rock star. He's been in command for 16 months. The Confederates have been largely successful. Perhaps you could call it a draw at Antietam, but other than that, he's been very, very successful. And then the question is, if you're that successful, if you're a rock star, who's the one person that's going to tell you, gee, boss, I don't think this is the greatest idea we've heard this week. Now, uh, you mentioned that he thought he was going to be arrested. Did he say anything about why, what he thought he may have done to get arrested? I'll have to defer to Tom on that one. I, I, I don't know that, but there, Lincoln, there's no doubt about it, you know, did move generals around with some frequency, um, depending on how well or how poorly they had done. By the, by the time we get to Hooker, I, I think we were up to about three or four different commanders, if not more, of the uh, Army of the Potomac. Uh, Meade also knows, oh, by the way, that um, he's not Lincoln's first choice. Actually, he's Lincoln's first choice was a guy named John Reynolds from Pennsylvania. Uh, but Reynolds will uh, turn the command down because he had told Lincoln, I'll only take the command if you and your military advisor, Halleck, promise not to interfere with any decision I make. And Lincoln goes, well, I'm not sure I can do that, General. At which point Reynolds says, well, in that case, I'm not interested in being command. So Reynolds also, or I mean, Meade also knows that he's not the principal choice. But why he's thought he might be arrested, I'm not sure. Tom, do you, do you know, recall? No, he, he confessed in a in a letter to his wife uh, very soon after the, the change of command that, that he, he thought that the colonel was there to, uh, to arrest him, and, and, uh, but he never stated what, what for. Now, understand that after Chancellorsville, there was a lot of turmoil in the Army of the Potomac as a number of officers resigned, refusing to, refusing to uh, uh, fight and lead any longer under General Hooker's command. So there was a lot of turmoil, personnel tur turnover at the highest level. Uh, in the Army, and uh, um, if uh, perchance Meade had said something uh, one way or another against uh, uh, Hooker or against the present administration in Washington, that might have been the only thing that might have uh, been cause for relief. But nothing was ever specifically stated that I'm aware of. Now, on uh, June 30th, Brigadier General John Buford uh, led his cavalry into Gettysburg. Uh, what, what did he see there, Tom? What did he do? Yes, when he entered into Gettysburg. Yeah, well, he, he he's going to uh, uh, arrive in Gettysburg June 30th, the day before the battle. And uh, he is uh, screening the forward movement of the left wing of the Army of the Potomac as they move up from Maryland up into Pennsylvania looking for, for the Confederates. So he has to screen the movement. He has to identify exactly where the Confederates are, what they're doing, how many of them there are. And he has to uh, uh, give an eye to uh, the key terrain in the area that should there be a battle fought, what was the best terrain for his army to occupy uh, if there were to be a battle there? So he has a number of tasks uh, which he's going to uh, accomplish in the traditional cavalry method by sending out uh, his squadrons, mounted patrols, uh, looking for the Confederates, uh, getting an eye of the terrain, uh, getting a feel for the terrain. And so he's going to, uh, he's going to set the table for the coming battle. His men will identify the Confederates in the area of uh, South Mountain to the west of uh, Gettysburg. Uh, his scouts, his patrols that went north of the town will carry back information from the local civilians who have rumors of additional Confederates 
moving over the mountains, coming down from Carlisle and Mechanicsburg, uh, headed, uh, headed uh, for Gettysburg. They had been recalled to that area by Lee on the June 28th when uh, he realized uh, from information provided by the scout Harrison that uh, the, the Federal Army was across the river as well and a lot closer to Lee than he thought they knew. So Buford is going to accomplish a number of tasks and indeed in the book and in the leadership seminars which Jeff and I do on the battlefield, uh, we rely heavily on, on Buford to tell the story and to serve as an example of in most, in, well in all cases, positive leadership attributes that we speak of. You know, in that regard, he's a perfect example we talked about a moment ago, Phil, about this idea of leadership versus management, because I would argue that's exactly what he does. He sees when he gets out to McPherson's Ridge, he can see with his binoculars, let alone the reports he's getting from his patrols, the Confederates are to his west along South Mountain. So I'm going to have to deal with that problem. They're going to come here tomorrow. That's without question. So he puts the majority of his soldiers along McPherson's Ridge to control the key terrain, which he identifies to be Cemetery Ridge, uh, Cemetery Hill, and, and the Round Tops. But at the same time, he has these reports, as Tom mentioned, that there may be more Confederates coming from the north. So I've got to anticipate. I've got to think in time. I've got to deal with future changes. So what does he do? Well, he puts a few guys out there as a light screening force on the right, uh, to screen that if that possibly happens in future future. So he's dealing with the immediate, the management challenge. He's dealing with the future, the future challenge. And then the other thing he does, which I find particularly uh, interesting, is he does what we call leading the boss. Because when he finishes, he's there as the lead cavalry force for the advance of the left wing of the Union Army of the Potomac, commanded by John Reynolds, who I mentioned a few moments ago. So he sends a message back to Reynolds, and this message is basically a spot report, and it has only a couple of components. One, I have seen the Confederates to my front. I've identified the enemy, where they're at. Number two, I've identified, I've identified and occupied key terrain to the west of the town. That's where I'm at. Number three, get the infantry up here first thing in the morning. Now, he's telling that to his boss, okay? And he's leading his boss, and we like to say, you know, you know, smart bosses want to be led, and people who are smart lead their bosses consciously and not unconsciously. When Reynolds gets that message, he could have said, well, why don't you come back here? We'll have a committee meeting. We'll sing Kumbaya. We'll think this all over and figure out what we're going to do next. But these two guys have worked together so long that decisions can be made by the speed of trust. And it's trust which ties the leader of any organization to his or her organization. So when Reynolds gets that message, he doesn't hesitate for a moment. John Buford says that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're going to do. And he then turns and orders uh, his infantry to accelerate their movement towards Gettysburg. So that leading the boss is key to how this all unfolds. Now, you used the phrase thinking in time. What does that mean? It means anticipating and, and thinking through how are things changing, because one of the aspects of strategy also is you have to deal with a great deal of uncertainty. And we found when we were back at the War College, and we talked about that a moment ago, that what the officers got to learn how to do, or any corporate leader for that matter, is, is deal with a vague, uncertain, complex, and changing environment. And that drives some people crazy because some people like clear closure. But that's what this is really all about. And consequently, you're dealing with a problem we often refer to it as a wicked problem, which means as you start to deal with the problem, the problem changes, and you've got to be prepared to anticipate how it might change. I always say if you are in a competition, whether it's a military battle, a sporting event, or 
you're competing with another company in, in the economy, don't forget your opponent gets a vote on your strategy. You can do X, that, then he can change and do Y. So you've got to anticipate what are the changes he might make and how can I perhaps husband resources to, to react to that should he take that alternative path. Okay, and then finally, I have to be willing to accept a certain amount of risk. I'm never going to have absolute certainty because if I seek absolute certainty, if I seek everything to be crystal clear, then I'm going to use the most precious resource in many ways any organization has, which is time. Colin Powell used to say P equals 40, 40 to 60. What he meant by that was the probability of success <clears throat> is equal to making decisions when you get about 40 to 60 percent of the information you'd like. You're not going to have it all, so you've got to accept a certain amount of risk, not a gamble. A risk is a calculation of, of what I may gain for what I'm risking and, and then make a decision. Now, Tom, uh, we talked about Buford planning for a possible uh, battle at Gettysburg, but what was Lee doing at the time? Was he intending to fight there? Uh, he, was, uh, he, uh, he, he had identified the key terrain that uh, should a battle be fought there. Uh, and the key terrain was Cemetery Hill south of the town and Cemetery Ridge. Uh, if the Confederates chose to advance against that key terrain, then he knew he had to give battle. And so that is, uh, that is what uh, he is going to do. He's given the empowerment to make that kind of decision. That's the relationship that he has with, uh, with Reynolds. That's the relationship he has with General Pleasanton, the, the chief of the Cavalry Corps. Um, so he is going to then set, uh, as I said earlier, set the table by, by deploying his troops there, both in terms of a main line of resistance that follows basically along McPherson's Ridge and uh, on up uh, toward Oak Hill and Oak Ridge, but also employing mounted squadrons as cavalry vedettes forward of that line to identify any Confederate advance against the area. So he's got to uh, uh, hold the ground forward of the key terrain until his army can arrive and occupy it, and that's his ultimate goal. Jeff, what was Lee doing at this time? Well, Lee, first of all, wasn't there as the battle starts. I mean, as the battle starts, of course, it's A.P. Hill who will advance with his first, his corps will advance and have contact with Buford, and the fighting begins early on the morning of 1 July. Um, Lee will not arrive until later on in the afternoon. Uh, and he's about as publicly irritated as a southern gentleman can be when he arrives because, but as Tom pointed out, he had ordered his people to consolidate. One of the reasons they consolidate is about nine or ten roads pass through Gettysburg. But don't uh, get into a major engagement until we're all there because his concern, of course, we are in enemy country, oh, by the way. We don't want to be beaten piecemeal. So when he arrives, He's a little irritated because we're now decisively engaged. We haven't all arrived yet. We haven't all arrived. Only two corps had arrived. That was Hill's Corps coming from the west and um, uh, Ewell's Corps, which had come down from the north. But he does something back to that idea of strategy and being able to deal with change. And we used to say uh, when I was in the Army and, and certainly when I was in combat as a battalion commander, you know, no, no plan survives the first round fired. We can have a great plan, but again, you're going to have to adapt as you move along. So when he arrives, he sees they're engaged. He's not happy with that, but hey, we're being successful. There may be an opportunity here. There may be an opportunity. And then he will send a message, a very famous message late in the afternoon 
to Richard Ewell, who's the commander of the Corps that had come down from Carlisle, is now out, outflanked the uh, Yankees. The Yankees are fleeing through the town of Gettysburg. And he says, hey, take that hill in front of you if you deem it practical to do so, with that hill being Cemetery Hill. And this is the so-called discretionary order, which is probably the one order in all of military history for, for Americans, at least, that more, more military books have been written about in terms of Richard Yule and what he decides to do and why. So, Tom, what did Richard Yule decide to do? Well, he hesitates, and, and he, he decides, uh, he decides not, to, not to make the attack, understanding that if we put ourselves in kind of his uh, situation, um, here he is. This is his first battle as corps commander. He and A.P. Hill, Ambrose Powell Hill, they're replacements for the fallen Stonewall Jackson. No one man could replace Stonewall Jackson. So Lee replaces him with two guys, L. Ewell and, and, and Hill. And neither one are going to perform up to standard uh, at, the, at the Gettysburg battle. But in this particular instance, given the discretionary order, part of his upbringing for Ewell is that he served under Jackson. Jackson would never have given Ewell a discretionary order. Jackson was always very specific as to his orders with his, uh, with his subordinates. Go do this. That's where I want it done over there. Go do it now. And when you get done, come back. I'll tell you the next thing I want you to do. That was Jackson's style. So no one has ever asked Ewell's uh, opinion before. Uh, before Lee sends that discretionary order. So he kind of doesn't know how to handle it is uh, my take on it. But also, his guys have, have marched uh, steadily down from, uh, from this area up here. They were just up the road here at Oyster Point, uh, up the road from the studios here, uh, some of them. And, and so they marched rapidly to Gettysburg. Uh, they fight in the afternoon of the first day. By the time they turn the Yankee line and push back the 11th Corps and get into the town, those boys are tired. Plus, they're also, guess what, out of command and control. There's no raping and pillaging, and General Lee had published an order to that effect uh, before they crossed the Potomac River. But uh, they're in the town, and, and they're going to be looking for uh, uh, something to eat, something to drink, a new pair of boots, a new pair of trousers. They're not in full command and control. The sun sets at 730. Uh, it's just a couple hours from now, and he knows he does not have enough time to get everyone back under command and control in order to make the attack that Lee has asked him to make uh, if he finds it practical to do so. He finds it impractical to do it. You know, in that regard, this is a classic example of what we call, you know, leadership style. Each one of us has a leadership style that we're comfortable with. They all operate on a continuum of absolute total dictatorial control to absolute complete empowerment to those who, who work for us. And Tom and I have discussed this particular very famous moment of Buell receiving this message. Uh, and in some ways, I have to fall, frankly, Robert E. Lee a bit more than Ewell, because it always struck me that what Lee was very comfortable with a very you know, uh, empowerment style of command. He would give broad guidance to his commanders and they would execute. But so far, he's enjoyed very superb subordinate commanders. He's got Stonewall Jackson, he's got Jeb Stewart, and he's got uh, Longstreet. And they've been very effective with that type of a style. But now I got two new leaders who've not been in command, not been in command at this level, not as <coughs> confident. So I need to give them a bit more, perhaps, direction and guidance. So leaders need to realize I've got to adjust my style 
as I move people into new positions until they build up a certain level of competence and confidence upon themselves, and then they can proceed. So how did Lee respond when Yule didn't, didn't move? Well, he accepts that as a, a matter of course. Um, he returns to his headquarters uh, late that night, and I think I'll have Tom to describe it. He describes it so well. Uh, the most senior by age uh, Confederate general, General Trimble, will show up to have some particular comments about that. But uh, this will be devil Robert E. Lee for the next several days because I think in his heart of hearts, he thinks an opportunity was missed. And on the second day, for example, as he gives, gives uh, Pete Longstreet uh, his instructions to begin the movement south, which will re result in the fighting around Little Round Top, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Where does Lee go? He immediately goes up on the north side to talk to Richard Ewell directly to give him some very direct guidance, now realizing he's got to be a bit more direct with Ewell uh, because of this newly assumed command that Ewell has. But Tom, why don't you talk about that meeting between Trimble and, and, and Lee, which I think is instructive on how Lee felt about that discretionary order. Well, I think that uh, Lee, in his heart of hearts, really wanted Yule to go after that high ground, uh, um, uh, Cemetery Hill and Copes Hill. Uh, he really did want him to continue the momentum. He did not want the attacking Confederate troops to go to ground, because whether it's the 19th century combat or 20th, I can tell you, 20th, 20th century combat in, in Vietnam, once the boys go to ground, it's hard to get them up again. And so he wanted to maintain that momentum, maintain the initiative in, in, uh, in taking that, that high ground, which, which everyone now has recognized it is key terrain. Uh, he, he controls that, that, that terrain, controls the area, controls the town, controls those 10 major roads that come into the center of the town. So it's a very important piece. Recognizing this was uh, maybe somewhat uh, um, part of legend, but Isaac Trimble uh, was a supernumerary at the time. He is, uh, had been wounded, had returned to the Army of Northern Virginia prior to or at the start of the Gettysburg Campaign. He doesn't have a command, uh, so Lee has him as a supernumerary. He is with Ewell during this decision-making process. As Ewell receives the discretionary order uh, through Lee's assistant adjutant, and then Ewell processes through his decision cycle, and in the end decides, no, no, um, I can't do this. We got Yankee cavalry off to our left flank. We got the boys in the town. They're out of command and control. The sun's going to set. We don't want to do night attacks. And so various sundry reasons why not to do it. And Trimble, uh, allegedly, is very offended by, by uh, uh, Ewell's indecision and the final decision not to do it. And so uh, he goes to Lee and complains to Lee that he, in, in fact, confesses uh, or states, rather, that uh, he had begged for Ewell to give him troops and he would go take the hill. But uh, it, was, uh, it was certainly whether, again, it's out of the book, The Killer Angels, and the, the movie Gettysburg, so it's hard to pinpoint uh, the exact uh, historical uh, uh, context to this one, but, but that gives you an idea, gives us an idea of uh, what it was like. Yeah, we talked about Buford uh, instructing uh, Reynolds to bring up the infantry uh, as soon as he could. Uh, when did Reynolds get there with his troops? Well, Reynolds will arrive around the middle of the day and, and immediately begin deploying the, uh, his infantry, and of course the cavalry under Buford are pulled out and moved out to the flanks where they normally would be to screen the flanks. 
But Reynolds only only lives for about another hour, and he's killed on the battlefield, one of the first general officers killed on the battlefield. And it's a very interesting, insightful point we talk about a lot during our seminars, because here's John Reynolds, really highly thought of. He is, has operational command for the entire left wing of the Union Army as it advances. And what that means is he's in command of about 25,000 troops. But when he is killed, uh, he actually is giving direction to about 800 guys from a Wisconsin regiment, directing them into a wood line uh, there along McPherson's Ridge. Uh, and he comes up on his horse and says, you know, forward, men, forward, for God's sake, drive those fellows from the tree. Bam, he gets shot, takes it in the back of the head, and is dead before he hits the ground. The interesting point about that, and you can argue this in several directions, but it's a useful, uh, a useful scenario to discuss, is was that the right place for him to be? For an organization, when they're in crisis, one of the things a leader needs to think about, even in the 21st century, despite all our technology, where do I physically need to be? Where can I have the greatest impact at this moment? And you could argue, and that would be fair, that John Reynolds has a command of 25,000 guys. He needs to be somewhere where he can see the bigger picture and direct the movement of major formations. Others might say, no, no, being right there and basically taking over the command of that regiment. And there was a colonel there in commando, by the way. Um, who, who gets badly wounded but survives the battle. And he now is giving direction to 800 guys. He is micromanaging, you know. And if you look at people today, particularly if you talk to or do interviews or surveys with youngsters, millennials and Gen Z people, in terms of what they hate the most, micromanagement usually pops out at the top of the list. So uh, Reynolds doesn't survive that experience, but it offers you the, uh, an opportunity to examine that point of that question of where should I be at a critical moment in my organization physically is something I need to think through. Now, in the book, you talk about uh, these officers being prisoners of the past, and you mentioned that the, one of the manuals that they were using was written after the War of 1812, and then that itself was modeled after a French manual from the 1790s. Uh, well, why were they so wedded to these older, older ways of doing things? Well, the, 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 uh, the military oftentimes uh, is, is uh, as a, as a corporate body is unwilling to, to change. And Jeff alluded to, told us earlier, you know, if you don't like change, you're gonna like irrelevance even less. But, uh, and what we wrote in there is exactly right. I mean, Winfield Scott uh, is, going to, is going to write the basic infantry tactical manual, which, which is uh, primarily a, 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 um, a French manual that's been put into English form by him. And he's going to make some changes to it, but that's the manual, uh, and others that published by fellows like Hardy and and and, uh, and others are going to be the tactical manuals, but they're going to reflect the old tactics, and uh, in the face of technology, that is a, a mass distribution of of rifled muskets as opposed to the old old smooth bores. We have an overmatch of technology versus the tactical way to do it because. Uh, well, we've always done it that way, and so it's um, it's it's part of the leader. Part of the leader's responsibility is to prepare the organization for change, and certainly in the in the uh, antebellum period, uh, that didn't happen during the war itself. That didn't happen until until later in the war, the latter half uh, of the war. Then we do see we do see some changes. In, in the in the tactical method, but uh, up to this point, it's just like it was before. You know, it's just a matter of leaders having to be attuned to even very small changes. If you look at 
a Civil War musket and you compare it to a Revolutionary War musket or a neat war, uh, musket from the War of 1812, they don't look all that terribly different from the exterior. But as Tom mentioned, the key thing is the rifling, and they're now firing a mini ball, which is you know a cylindrical uh, slug uh, as opposed to a musket ball, meaning that the range is now about 400 meters, but it's, it's pretty accurate at 400 meters. And you combine that with changes in things like artillery, and these small changes have this profound effect, but we're still doing the same thing. Here in the 21st century, uh, we have the same thing going on. One of the really massive changes that's occurring is movement towards nanotechnology. We can actually create machines out of proteins that, you're, that are tiny. We can now create satellites uh, that at one time we'd create satellites that had to be as big as a bus when we put them in outer space. Well, now, because you can miniaturize things, you can create a satellite the size of a baseball. Well, that changes exponentially the problem of putting that particular object into outer space and what you can do with it, which allows you then to put up things for navigation, which allows you to get to nav uh, driverless cars and all kinds of things. So leaders being willing to accept change, think through why do we do that, and, and just because we've always done it not being the best reason, and the impact of even small change is something they need to be attuned to in the 19th century or, again, in the 21st century. Now, people who know anything about Gettysburg have heard the name uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, but in the book you mention another Chamberlain, Wilt Chamberlain, as a, as a, a lesson there. You talk about his granny shot. Why, why did you include him? Well, Wilt Chamberlain, yeah, because, of course, Pennsylvania, it occurs in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And that is uh, that uh, he's playing for uh, the uh, Philadelphia, and they're playing uh, San Francisco. And they used to play a few road games in other uh, locations. And they play a ball game in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And this is the famous game where Wilt Chamberlain will score 100 points in the ball game. And Chamberlain um, was, for his period of time, a dominating basketball player. Not only is he seven feet tall, somebody described him as having the dexterity of a ballerina. He was really uh, tremendous. But he had one fatal flaw, and that is he could not shoot free throws. He was terrible. In fact, to the point that the coach goes to him and says, well, if you can learn how to shoot free throws, I have figured it out mathematically. We will never lose, okay, if you can shoot a free throw. Because what it boils down to tactically is if your best player is a lousy free throw shooter, then as the, if the game's close towards the end, he, he becomes a liability because the other team's just going to foul him. He's going to miss the free throw, and they're going to get the ball. So he's a liability. So in that particular season, when he scores his 100 points, uh, what Chamberlain has finally done is gone from shooting free throws the normal way to going the granny shot, throwing it underhand. And he, he hits almost all his free throws. He was about a 30% free throw shooter before that. He goes up to like 70 or 80%. He learns this from Rick Barry, who was playing for a California team. Barry averaged over 90% of his free throw shots throughout his career. So Chamberlain is able to do that and they win this game, he scores 100 points. What's amazing is, what's he do the following season? He goes back to shooting it the old way and becoming lousy at it. And when asked, why did you do it? Why didn't you stick with what you're doing? And he said, it, it made me feel like a wimp. And people would holler from the stands, you know, and because those days the stadiums were a lot, the people were closer to the ball player. So this is, the, the, when you're thinking about change in an organization, one thing you got to realize is social pressure within the team and with the organization as a whole is resistant to change. And he didn't do it because it made him feel like a wimp. In similar fashion, when you talk about why didn't these guys move away from long lines of infantry that are staring at each other at 40 and 50 yards, banging away at each, uh, each other, well, that's because that was the manly thing to do. That was the manly thing to do. So I believe the same kind of social pressure that made Chamberlain go back to doing something which was failing, shooting free throws the normal way, 
And what kept those guys continually doing that and not thinking about change was really social pressure, which holds up change. Now, one of the leadership uh, principles you talk about is the importance of buy-in. And uh, you talk about the relationship between Lee and Longstreet on, on the second day of the battle. Uh, Tom, what, what, what types of, what instructions did Lee give Longstreet uh, during the day there? Well, for the, for the, the second day of the battle, then, uh, well, actually, we have to go back to the night of the first day, where there is a, uh, a brief meeting between Lee and Longstreet uh, from uh, a vantage point on Seminary Ridge, where they can see a mile to their east, Cemetery Hill, and see the federal soldiers um, rallying there. And uh, finally, Longstreet, having studied the terrain, says generally said, uh, by tomorrow morning, that hill will be too strongly defended for us to attack successfully. Now, of course, if you want to try and truck your boss out of doing something, you better have a good recommendation uh, to, uh, to follow. Instead, what, rec what uh, Longstreet recommends is that uh, as they pull back slightly, and then move, maneuver the army, maneuver the enemy off of their strong position by passing to the south, going down Seminary Ridge, go, go south of Big Round Top, perhaps down into Maryland, find good defensive ground of their own choosing, and force the enemy army to attack them on that good defensive ground. But Lee, isn't by, Lee does not buy into Longstreet's recommendation. Instead, he points across the way uh, and, and tells Longstreet, if those people are still there in the morning, then we're going to attack them at that place. And Longstreet responds, General, if those people are still there in the morning, it's because they want you to attack them at that place. But Lee is the commander, so the attack is going to be made on the, on the second day of the battle, but Longstreet does not want to make this attack. And uh, so this is where we get into, uh, we mentioned earlier, leading the boss. Uh, Longstreet's preparations, Lee's going to direct him to take the two divisions he has on the field, commanded by General Hood, General McLaws, attack the left center of the federal line on Cemetery Ridge. Longstreet uh, does not want to do this. He's late in getting his troops into, into their attack positions to do it. Uh, and that, that, uh, that lightness, the countermarch, the infamous countermarch to get into the proper position is what uh, we would call slow rolling the boss. We talked, you know, on the positive sense of leading the boss in this case, and I've studied James Longstreet a long time, as others have. I've read their books, and I've studied his personality, and I believe that he does not want to make this attack, so he's going to slow roll the boss on this occasion. It's going to happen again the next day, on the third day of the battle, in uh, Lee's orders to conduct what is, uh, uh, well, originally titled by the, by, the, by the historian, by the government, as Longstreet's assault of the third day at Gettysburg, today we, we generously call it Pickett's Charge, but Longstreet did not want to make that attack either. And so he does not have the buy-in, Lee does not get the buy-in from his senior subordinate commander. Very important to have that guy uh, as, 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 part of, as part of your decision cycle in, in a positive way. And at Gettysburg, it's not going to happen for Lee and Longstreet. Now this is this battle is huge, and we could probably do multiple episodes on the battle itself. But I wanted to uh, talk to you about uh, one of the things you talk about is cohesion and the value of cohesion in military units. So why is that such an important leadership value? Well, cohesion is what holds the team together. I like to say trust is what, hold, what glues the leader to the organization. They trust him or her, and we've seen places where that trust is broken 
uh, during this battle, and, and soldiers will just very matter of fact, they say, I'm not going to follow that guy anymore, even out of idle curiosity. Cohesion would hold the team together during difficult moments. And Tom and I, frequently we go to the battlefield, we'll talk about that at the, at the North Carolina Monument, which is my favorite monument on the field. Describe quickly for the audience, it shows these four figures <clears throat> really very closely packed together really closely packed together. One at the bottom appears to be uh, injured. He's still indicating that direction. That's where we need to go. Uh, and, they're, and they're pulling it together because they're a team. And oftentimes, I draw the motive metaphor to another great book I like called The Boys in the Boat, which is about uh, the U.S. Olympic rowing team in 1936, a very famous story. Uh, these young guys from the University of Washington uh, who become rowers because it allows them to get fed during the Depression while going to college. That's why they're there. But they are very successful. But if you think of, of athletics, the one sport that demands the greatest cohesion and synchronization is rowing. We're all synced. We all know what we're doing. We all know what our part is in that task, and we are a team. And they talk about that very much in the book. The same is true in military formations. Tom and I have talked to it. He, he commanded in Vietnam. I commanded in the Gulf War. And I always say, at the end of the day, uh, in combat, uh, you know, the, the important things, such as the Star Spangled Banner and love of country and patriotism, those are very, very important. They really are. And they'll get people to join the military and go through the training and deploy and do all the things that they and sacrifice. <clears throat> but ultimately, when it comes time to go into battle, the thing that motivates them is my buddy's going. The guy on my left is going. The guy on my right's going. I'm not going to let them down because they're not going to let me down. And that's exactly what we see at Gettysburg. Uh, to the point, on the third day, as the Confederates are advancing the 1.1 miles that separates Seminary Ridge from Cemetery Ridge, there are officers behind them, and they're talking to them, and they're saying, home, boys, home. Home is just over that hill. That's what this is all about. That's what this is all about, is winning the war, and you'll get to go home. But why do guys do that? Why do they advance 1.1 miles against, you know, obviously, cannon fire as well as musket fire. They're doing it for each other. They're doing it for each other. That, that's what holds them together. Now, the Union Army up to this point had, in the East, had suffered uh, quite a few defeats. And uh, how did the victory at Gettysburg affect their morale and affect their sense of them, themselves? Well, as I, as I mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of changes in the Army of the Potomac since Chancellorsville. And, uh, in the Gettysburg campaign, as, as they move across the uh, north of the Potomac uh, uh, and uh, into, into Pennsylvania, ultimately, then the situation has changed. They're no longer in Virginia. And so the, the federal troops are uh, defending uh, um, Pennsylvania, a loyal state of the Union. And so it's, it's, uh, it's a much different kind of uh, uh, a battle for them. And um, they're going to have a lot of that cohesion that Jeff talked about earlier is going to play in, increasingly into effect, as well as the, uh, the, uh, the new chain of command. Uh, and it's going to all be for the positive. One of the dynamics of all this is that uh, in, the, in the Confederate defeat, um, I believe that, um, that Lee, the Confederate commander, fails to recognize the changes in the in his opponent, the changes in their leadership, the changes in their motivation, the changes in their morale. Uh, and he also uh, overplays his previous experience. Uh, and they've been successful. He's been in command 13 months. Uh, and 
you can call the Battle of Antietam a draw, perhaps, but the other battles that his troops have been involved in, they, they come off victorious. And after every battle, within uh, a day or two of every battle, the Federal Army's always withdrawn. Well, he has that expectation when he orders Pickett's Charge uh, uh, for the third day. It's not going to happen. These boys are going to stick, and they're going to defeat the Confederate attack. Now, in your book, you also talk about uh, the Gettysburg Address. Uh, why, why is that significant in terms of strategic leadership? Well, I think, I think it's fundamental because, of course, uh, Lincoln, to start with, you always raise the question I always ask people, which are kind of stunned by, you know, if you were Abraham Lincoln, would you go give this speech? And, of course, we know he did. But for first purposes of thinking about leadership, it's an important question to ask. And there was a whole host of reasons why he shouldn't have gone anyway. I mean, to begin with, he's not the principal speaker. Principal speaker is Edward Everett, who's a political opponent, who actually had ran against Lincoln uh, as the vice president for the Union Party ticket in 1860. Uh, Everett receives his invitation, by the way, in September. Uh, Lincoln doesn't get his invitation until early November for an event on the 19th. Kind of short fuse for a president. Presidents didn't travel that much. Oh, by the way, the war's still going on. It wasn't going terribly well in some ways at that particular moment. Uh, but perhaps more personally or more poignantly, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln is very much opposed to Lincoln going. Why? Because, well, they had lost one son who died of a fever in February of 1862. Willie, their surviving son, is very ill, and Mrs. Lincoln fears that child will die as well. And so she begs Lincoln not to go. So there's a host of Lincoln reasons why you don't go. But to me, Lincoln goes because we talked about early on when we talked about resources and we talked about the importance of time, sort of the flip side of thinking about time as a leader is timing. When is the right moment to do something? When is the right moment to perhaps redefine the vision for your particular organization? I think Lincoln says this is the moment. Why? Well, oh, by the way, all of the senators from all the Union states, they're going to be present. A lot of the congressmen will be present. All the newspapers will be present. By the way, newspapers explode during the American Civil War in terms of providing media coverage across the country. Lincoln also knows uh, that, that I'm, about, I'm about 15 months from uh, running for re-election in November of 1864. And as I like to say, Lincoln was very schooled in the three principal laws of politics. Get elected, get re-elected, and don't forget rules one and two. So he realized i got to face that. This is an opportunity to do some fence mending, but it's an opportunity also to expand on the vision. And that's what I argue uh, he does when he goes into that particular cemetery on the afternoon of the 19th of November. He sits through Edward Everett's two-hour set of remarks and then gives his speech, 272 words. You can say it about two and a half minutes. When he describes really, as I like to say it in, a, in an organized fashion, any leader can use, where have we been? Where are we right now, and where are we going? Where have we been four score and seven years ago? Math takes you back to the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which Lincoln thought was the foundational document for our democracy. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. Where are we right now? We are met on the great battlefield of this war, and it is right and proper that we should be here. Where are we going? We're going to a new birth of freedom. That's how he wraps it up. 
So up until that point, I like to believe when those 15,000 people, and that's what they roughly estimate, were there, enter the cemetery, the mission for the organization is preserving the Union. That's what Lincoln had talked about in his first inaugural. Really, the Emancipation Proclamation is about that. But now we've expanded on that vision, and now the vision is certainly about preserving the Union, but also it's inextricably linked to ending slavery. And Lincoln will run on that in 1864, much to the chagrin of many leading Republicans who say he shouldn't do that. He is reelected, and we also know then in early 1865 we'll pass the 13th Amendment, ending slavery in the United States. So it's back to a leader using a moment to expand on a vision for his or her organization and using that organization of where we've been, where we're now, and where we're going to communicate that revised vision to his organization. Well, that'll have to be the last word. We've been speaking with Jeffrey McCausland and Tom Vossler. They are the authors of the book, Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. Thank you both for being here. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Phil. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.